Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe and leave a review. As a writer and a marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any other kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I have a passion for companies that care and give back to their communities. So I started a new podcast in April, Companies That Care, to highlight those business leaders who are working to create a better world for all. I'm alternating companies that care with this podcast each week. You can find all the information on my website. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I hope you'll join me in signing the AAPI Visibility Pledge to support Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. You can find the link in the blog post for this episode or in the show notes. Today, I interview Christine Carino, a queer non-binary immigrant from the Philippines. Christine's pronouns are she, her, and Shaw, as she explains on the podcast. Christine's grit and resilient story led to her life's work with underrepresented groups and communities as a transformation coach and consultant. I posted photos and further details about Christine on my website, including links to her website. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome, Christine. Hello, Christine. Thank you so much for coming on to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is such a pleasure to be in your platform. So, Oh, I'm just really, really excited to hear your story. It sounds like quite a journey that you've been on. Let's start at the beginning. Why don't you tell our listeners about your life beginnings? What was your childhood like? I was born and raised in the Philippines from a middle-class family. Very religious, heavy on on the religion and Christianity, and very patriarchal. (laughs) Was it it a Catholic upbringing or another type of Christian? At first, it was a Catholic upbringing, and then it basically converted to Protestant. Oh, I see. And did you have siblings? Yes, I have four siblings. I'm a middle child, middle of two boys. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so growing up for me was basically hearing, why don't you listen to your older brother? Uh, He's older than you. Or why don't you give way to your younger brother? Oh. He's younger than you. <laughs> were you. So you were the only girl in the family? No, I have a, an, an older sister. Older the eldest sister. is a, it's a girl. So you and your sister were probably treated very, very differently than your brothers then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my sister, my sister, because she's the firstborn, she had all the, the love first, right? And so, uh-huh. and, and she had her own thing growing up she really had very separate kind of journey with how she basically played with other girls I'm more of a tomboy (laughs) if you want to put it that way I love playing with boys and of course I'm a girl they would always be like oh just play with other girls (laughs) you know (laughs) just go on the other side play with other girls so for me the journey definitely looked very differently growing up do you remember when you started feeling an attraction to other girls? I think I was in grade four, it was in elementary, that I was 
really so attracted to my best friend at that time. And I didn't know what it was because no one explained to me what it was. There was no representation on TV as well, accurately on what it could be. And then until I heard, I'm not sure if it was my mom or it was my aunt who basically said, please do not tell me that you're gay. Oh, really? That was the first message you got, huh? I enjoy playing with boys. I like wearing t-shirts instead of dresses. I cry whenever they put dresses on me. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the first thing that I heard. It's like, you cannot be that. And I internalize it for sure. And I said, okay. You know, the journey after that was basically making sure that I present femme or more feminine. There's a lot of like self-rejection that I internalize as well, self-hate, and a part of me that really repressed it for a very long time until I was in college and I went to an old girl's school. And even that in the beginning of my my, my college years, I was pretty much self-proclaimed straight. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're trying to make yourself straight. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, I'm straight. And some girls at that time have shared their interests or their attraction towards me. And I would shut it down until I fell in love. yes it was really like the first lesbian experience that I had and it felt so right because I have had boyfriends in the past Mm -hmm. and this one was different and it felt like I felt the connection emotional connection the right physical attraction I was just like wait what is this (laughs) and then my family found out I was sent to conversion therapy how did your family find out did somebody out you or did you out yourself somebody out me how horrible Yeah, it was actually my uncle and my aunt who was in the Philippines. They're from here. They're from the United States. And they were in the Philippines for a specific amount of time for education. They're a very conservative Christian. So they found out I was outed. And they're the ones who sent me to conversion therapy. And so were you still in the Philippines when all this was happening? Or were you in the US? Yeah, still in the Philippines, yep. And you were a college student, so you weren't really fully independent. No. So what was the conversion therapy? What did that look like? It was just like therapy. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the reason. I think that was also the reason why I had trauma around going to therapy. For yeah, well, <laughs> don't blame you. Yeah, I didn't consider going to therapy until I was 20 something, late 20s. Yeah, it was just like therapy. They really go into the past or my childhood, my pain and how it's wrong. Then they bring up the Bible that shows why it's wrong. There's a lot of guilt and shame. So it was, quote, Christian therapy. Yeah. So uh, probably all conversion therapy is, quote, Christian therapy, probably. I don't know whether other religions do that kind of thing. Maybe that's horrible. So you felt all the shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did, especially because I didn't realize it back then, but I was really very spiritual growing up. I've always believed in higher power that I'm always taken care of. So I've always been connected to that spiritual aspect within me. And knowing that that higher being doesn't love me because of who I am, was painful Mm. 100% you know because I had this full knowing that I was loved regardless so how long did the therapy go on for it didn't go so long I think six months 
Did you ever feel kind of defiant during the therapy? Like, who cares what he thinks? Was it complete shame? There was a part of me that was questioning. I think what that brought to me was now, why would a God that speaks of love unable to accept someone like me? Yeah, But also all at the same time, there was this conflict within the eternal conflict, right? Because I wanted to be loved and accepted. It's our innate to feel or want that belonging. But also, why was I not loved? You know, like questioning that. The kind of Jesus that I believe in, you know, he would have been on the pride parade. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But how much do you think you're growing up as a Filipina influenced your I mean, did you feel all this pressure to please your parents? Do you feel like that was part of it as well? Was that extra pressure on you? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's absolutely one thing and feeling that I have to over accomplish, right? Because it's the overcompensation, uh-huh. the compensation theory. When we feel that we lack, we have to overdo. I'm very much that person. I try right. to do as much so I can get the validation from my parents. Because I mean, the, the interpretation that I have in my head is like, because I'm gay, at least I'm not ABCD. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's such a toxic paradigm uh-huh. to live in. Yeah, I feel like people who come from Asian cultures have this extra loaded burden on their shoulders mm-hmm. in needing to live up to their parents' expectations. Must have been really hard. So then after the conversion therapy, what happened next? I moved here. <laughs> I moved yeah. here to the United States and uprooted my life, actually. So my dad left when I was two years old and moved to America to support us. He was an illegal illegal immigrant here for a very long time until he got wanted by his employer. And then finally, he was able to say, you guys are coming with me to America. And I didn't want that. I just, I graduated from college. I already started my career, you know? Uh-huh, right. <laughs> and I don't know you. <laughs> so right, right. That was the conversation in my head. And I was so opposed to coming here. But I didn't have a choice because even though you're working and all that, and unless you're married, you're still under the authority of your parents. Right. <laughs> Moving here as an immigrant and starting from scratch was definitely an experience. It got me present to my privileges back home that I now didn't have. Growing up, you know, we always had nannies supporting us. I didn't I need to do laundry. I didn't have to cook. I didn't uh-huh. have to do all these things. And then coming here was such a transition. Because mm. I had to do everything. <laughs> I bet. Oh my gosh. Right. And actually, my first job was a babysitter and a nanny. So I did all the things that I didn't know how to do for other people. And that yeah. was for me was so humbling. And it gave me the the presence around my privileges. That's what I shared. And also how I move in spaces that I didn't necessarily know how to do. It was literally like starting from zero. Wow. <laughs> $100 to my name and started life <sighs> from there. And what city were you living in? New York. New York. So you went to New York and was your family in New York as well? Or did you kind of, did you go your own way or? Yeah, I moved here with my mom and my younger brother. But my younger brother had to go back to the Philippines to finish his school. So it was just me and my mom and my 
dad was living in another in, in, in their house because he already had a family. Uh, so it was just me and my mom. How was your experience about your sexuality at that point? I already told myself that I'm embracing this part of me, this part of me, but I'm also open to exploring it. So at that time, I identified as bisexual because I was still questioning. It's like, oh, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that I am like in a, in, a, in a country that has all these people and all these men. <laughs> oh my God. That was really the conversation that I had in my head. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're going to explore and have this experience. Mm-hmm. I ended up still, oh my God, I am so gay. Let's stop this. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Let's just stop this craziness. Oh and <laughs> really do the work and fully embracing every part of me. <laughs> so it was a journey. Did you move out on your own? You said that you arrived with $100 to your name. Does that mean your, your whole family had $100 or you personally did? I personally did. So, you know, the moment that we were able to get acclimated with how the trains work and all that, we started working right away. And also, it's like a story of resilience towards my mom because she also had to start from scratch. And she was a real estate executive back home. And she couldn't use that here. So I wasn't the only one who was resilient. It was also my mother, who I love so much. And Mm -hmm. as an immigrant family, you don't move out. You actually stay together. Mm -hmm. So I was living with my mom at that time. It was just me and her. There were holidays that we didn't have. We didn't get to celebrate because she was working. So how is your relationship with your family now? Have they accepted you? Yes. Yes. So they've kind of gotten beyond the conversion therapy stage. It was definitely a journey. Funny because when I came out to my dad, he was much more accepting. It was so funny, the story. I was so nervous and I was having this thought. It's like, I should actually tell my dad because we just started rebuilding our relationship and all that stuff. And I wanted to be transparent and for, for him to really know that this is part of who I am. I was practicing driving out here and I've had this lingering thought. It's like, I should I just come out now. I should just come out today, <laughs> right now, in this moment, you know? And then I saw Ellen the Generous's poster. Oh, wow. <laughs> billboard. And I was like, okay, that's a sign. Okay. <laughs> that is the sign that I need. Yeah, I told him that I was gay and he was so accepting. He said, it's like, Aww. if you think that I'm going to love you less because of who you are, you're wrong. Oh, I'm so glad you got that loving response. I know. And I was like, wait. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be an immigrant in America. And I'm also curious, especially because I've been reading that there's been a pretty big spike in anti-Asian hatred and bullying lately. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. What's it like to be a Filipino in America? It was hard. Let me just not say hard. It was challenging, of course, because of the transition. But I most definitely had to learn from there are a lot of things I have to unlearn. And for for me, I know firsthand what anti-Blackness looked like because growing up, another thing that I also experienced was colorism. I'm off darker skinned. And I was always compared to my sister who was lighter skinned and she's considered as the prettier one. So that for me, I understood when I came here, but I didn't know the depth 
of it, how systematic it was. But being an Asian American and an immigrant, right, I had privileges that I could acknowledge in comparison to my Black counterparts. So yes, there are challenges and struggles, but I can acknowledge that there's deeper and more violent struggles and challenges towards the Black community. Another thing that I also was just so confused about is how invisible Asian Americans are, especially in the conversation of civil rights. That's one thing that I've been like asking all my people, like my friends. It's like, where was our community in the civil rights movement? What did we do? What bathroom did we use? What are some of the laws against us too, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. So I just didn't hear as much of the struggles, the challenges, and even our allyship towards the civil rights or our roles. And that's part of the model minority myth mm-hmm. that I want to highlight because the reason why we have neglected this violence towards Asian Americans today is because we thought that they're fine, that we're fine because of that model minority. And that's the danger of that myth. We were weaponized and used to pit against other communities of color, right? It only highlighted our successes, but not our challenges and our struggles. Yes. So that's why it took so long, but this has been happening. This spike actually happened the start of this pandemic Uh in January of last year. And we're only just now, only just now talking about it. Right. Um, It's so very important that we we make sure that we're not portraying the pizza. You know, it's like the piece that you're only given a piece. It's either yours or the other. Mm -hmm. Like which piece is given the most. Mm -hmm. There is no pizza. Uh, right right (laughs) there is no pizza let's remove that all together (laughs) this is like we are all free to begin with it's just people in power that keeps on taking away that freedom and you have to recognize that and we have to make sure that we're standing up in solidarity towards each other for each other that the movement that we're trying to create or the the movement that we're we're doing in progress equity inclusion and belonging right is of abundance not of scarcity yeah and i think that as a white american i can i can certainly say that i feel like my education around asia was really lacking as a child, you know, I, I went to Japan to teach English after I graduated from college. And before I went to Asia to live in Asia, I don't, don't feel like I knew a whole lot about the different Asian countries. So my education was really lacking. And a lot of Americans don't know what happened in the Philippines, like what the Japanese did to Filipinos, you know, for example. So there's a lot of ignorance about the Philippines. Yeah. And we were actually, we were allies to Americans Mm -hmm, um, at that time, but we were also colonies. Yes. And neocolonialism to this day, America still has that. Mm, um, Absolutely. Yeah. I feel that way every time I've traveled anywhere, like, like even going to India, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. which has been independent for you know, 60 some years, but there's still that kind of elevation of this colonial mindset and white mm. people. And yeah, right. totally true. Have you experienced that? Do people know much about the Philippines here when you told them where you're from? 
No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they might know, like, they might know, you know, Imelda Marcos or something like that, right? Yeah, right, right. You know, exactly. I mean, unfortunately, I, you know, the Philippines was one country that I did not get to travel to because when I was in Japan, there was a lot of unrest there. So it didn't seem safe to go there. So mm-hmm. it was one country I really, really wanted to visit. But I have had a number of Filipino friends and colleagues over the years. So I've learned a lot about the country and I've eaten Filipino food, which is amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yes, definitely. So I have a great appreciation for the country. And someday maybe I'll get to go visit. Yeah. yeah it's a beautiful country. Uh-huh. Definitely. The islands are amazing. The people are great. The culture, the indigenous people too. It's very diverse. Yeah. There's a hundred plus dialects that we speak. Amazing. Um, and around 200 indigenous tribes. Wow. So. Yeah. The, I think the thing that that infuriates me about the xenophobia in the US is that the white nationalists, they they put down immigrants as if immigrants are stupid, but almost every immigrant speaks, you know, two or three languages. <laughs> you know, more than exactly more than these Americans that are storming the Capitol, right? Microaggressions too. Oh my God. Oh my yes, gosh. the microaggressions. I remember my colleague who was so surprised that I said the word palatable. Really? And she was like, I didn't know you know that word. Oh, dear. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like calling you articulate or something. Yeah, about you being non-binary. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Yeah, um, I'm actually, I was very, like what I said, I, I, I rejected myself a lot. But now coming into terms to, I don't want to follow any rules, anyone's rules. Mm. You know, it's like as as a male or a, a masculine, I want that feminine energy in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like masculine roles need to look like vulnerable loving, kind, compassionate, and female roles could look like courageous and assertive and fierce and powerful and all these things. And for me, that's really now how I operate. That whenever I present masculine, I make sure that what's attached to it is compassionate, kind, and then vice versa. So it's really not the binary of what the society has taught us to be. I want it to be on my own terms. So it's just fully embracing it because I've always had it. I was talking to someone else too about it and like the code switch. For me, my code switch experience is presenting female all the time. And that was so exhausting to me. Uh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> I have to like do this dress and look all pretty, wear heels and do makeup. Though I love doing makeup and all that, but I don't always want to be female presenting all the time. So now I would wear male clothing with makeup and period. How old are you? I'm 31. I'm in my 50s. Seems like my observation is that a lot of younger people are really embracing the non-binary gender. And I think a lot of it is because they don't want to be boxed into one particular gender. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's really brave to be able to say like, you know, hey, I I, I don't consider myself to be one or the other. So right. it's really great that young people are feeling the freedom to kind of claim who they are. You know, when I was your age, I wouldn't have, you know, it wasn't even a possibility. So and and let's talk a little bit about your pronouns. You explained before we started recording what your pronouns are. So my pronouns is she, her, or Shah. Shah is basically a Filipino pronoun for she or her. It's genderless. Uh, so I wanted to really use that because it represents me. It's non-binary and also Filipino. Yeah. And they're really, as far as I know, I mean, it doesn't seem like there are very many non-binary pronouns in other languages. No, yeah. I don't think so. I mean, it seems like they tend to be even more gendered. Most languages are more gendered than mm-hmm. English even. So that's beautiful. Yeah. And just thinking about it, it's actually, you know, because some of our language is influenced by the Spanish language. Right. But you will still see that the the pure ones, that's the dialogue, would be gender neutral, which is great. That's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing with your life now. So I am a transformation coach and consultant. As a coach, I help Black, Indigenous, and people of color and LGBTQ plus executives and leaders to reconnect with their authentic selves so they can live and lead consciously and create impact on their own terms. And as a consultant, I help bring culture of transformation in corporate businesses by bringing back the human at the center of it. I wanted to tap into the heart so we can truly embody inclusion, belonging, equity. So if you think back to yourself at age 21, what would you say to her now? I would say to forgive yourself, forgive yourself for not knowing what you know, forgive yourself so you can move forward powerfully. So my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? My mom's, definitely my mom's. Um, It was so powerful for me to hear her talk about because growing up she wouldn't talk about it I I think that's just like a a parent kind of thing Mm -hmm. they want to protect us from their their lived experiences because it was challenging it was hard it was painful they only want us to know the good stuff but uh, another beautiful thing of moving here was the rebuilding our relationship or recreating our relationship Mm-hmm. But I was able to actually get to know her more in a deeper way. Her story coming from a poor family from the province and really not having the money to support her. It was such a challenge because she had to leave home to tend for herself. And she chose that for herself. She said, I want to go to school, but I'm not able to do that here. So wow. she went to the, the to Manila on her own, lived with relatives and took on odd jobs while going to school all at the same time, telling me how challenging that was to be away from her family, one to also go to school and work odd jobs simultaneously. It was lonely, absolutely lonely for her. And when she had enough money, she would send money back home Hmm. and she became the breadwinner. Wow. Yeah. And she rise from doing that, being an executive of a real estate firm. When we moved here, 
all the same thing. She had to recreate start herself. all over again. Yeah. Yes. She had to recreate herself at 50 years old. Oh my gosh. And my mother is amazing. So she went back to school as a home health aide. She studied medicine for a little bit, like healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. And American healthcare is so very different from Filipino. Right. <laughs> yes. And my mom is not fluent in English too, uh, <laughs> right? She passed that test in like first day. Wow. It's so incredible. And then I basically gifted her a real estate class so she can still pursue that here. Her, that's really her passion. She loves property. She loves investment and all that. So I gifted her that course so she can take it and get licensed and all that. And she did. So she is doing both. Like she's doing real estate and also a home health age. That's a real inspiration. You know, it's it's great the way I asked that question. So many people say their their mom or their dad. (laughs) That's wonderful. So many people who have survived a very difficult time also have parents who have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And for me, it's like, you know, mom, I I I wish you had told as or taught as this shared your story when yeah, we were kids when right. we were younger we would have understood what hard work looked like yeah <laughs> right. right um but you know they did the best that they can and mm-hmm. i could only be grateful for all the ways in which they showed up for us they showed up for us well thank you so much for your time christine i'm gonna let you go so you could go eat something for dinner <laughs> thank <laughs> you this has been so amazing and Thank you again for allowing me to share my story. In this Thank platform. you. I'm honored. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Christine had such a rough road in her younger years as an Asian American immigrant. I'm glad Shaw has found a clear path in life now, but it's got to be an especially hard time to be Asian American. Don't forget to sign the AAPI Visibility Pledge. You can find a link and further details about Christine's journey and photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Next week, I interview my friend Ozzy Gonzalez on Companies That Care. I used to work with Ozzy on C.H. Chun Hill's sustainability program, and in 2020, he was Portland's first Latino candidate for mayor. We talked about what he's doing now, and I also asked him a lot of questions about Portland and sustainability. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.